Right, thank you, Tyler and Lynn. We'll take your Bible, if you will, this morning and turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 27, and we are continuing our study in the life of King David. And uh, you will remember in the past few weeks when we have been going through the life of King David, uh, David has had some ups and downs. And uh, last Sunday we saw where David experienced the danger of anger. Out of control temper almost got David in a lot of trouble. And David was met by a woman called Abigail. And uh, she warned David, cautioned him. It's a beautiful story. And uh, David listened to her advice and he stopped from doing something. He was stopped from doing something that he would have regretted. And now we're going to continue uh, looking at the life of David. Remember that everything in the Old Testament, the Bible says, is written for our instruction. So when you read especially the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament, don't look at it as simply a, a historical narrative of people that lived a long time ago. It is that. It is a historical narrative of things that happened thousands of years ago. But that is not what is important. What is important spiritually to you and I is that these stories are meant for our instruction. When we read these stories in the Old Testament, they teach us a lesson. A lesson about life. A lesson about following the Lord. They give us encouragement. They also give us warnings. And this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 27, and we titled the message this morning, The Calamity of Compromise. The Calamity of Compromise. Now, let's talk about compromise just a minute. There's good compromise and there's bad compromise. You know, really, I guess the first time I learned the meaning of the word compromise was sometime in the weeks and months and years following July the 26th, 19. 86, uh, which is the day that Loy and I got married. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a little bit about compromise. There's good compromise. Compromise is necessary in a marriage. It is necessary in every aspect of life. It's necessary in government. It's necessary in business. There's a certain type of compromise that is necessary. We have to learn we don't get everything our way. We don't get to have everything just like we want it. We have to sometimes compromise with others in order to have relationships and in order sometimes to get things done. That, that is a good kind of compromise. That is recognizing that I can't have things the way I want it. I have to be willing to give and take a little bit and uh, let other people have their way, listen to other opinions and so forth and so on. I've quoted St. Augustine who lived many, many years ago uh, around 1,700 years ago, a famous believer and Christian wrote a lot of things about his faith in Christ. And one of the, the, the great things that I believe he wrote, he mentioned how we were to get along as Christians. And he said something to the effect that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In essentials, Unity, as a, And when you take that little phrase, it helps us understand the difference between good compromise and bad compromise. In essentials, unity. St. Augustine was saying that there are some things about the Christian faith, namely the teachings of Scripture, what the Bible tells us, who God is, God's moral law, 
that are not to be compromised. There must be agreement. In a, that is essentials. Compromise is bad when you compromise the essentials of God's Word. In non-essentials, liberty. Meaning there are things that are not essential. That there may not be universal agreement on what the Bible says about certain issues. Those non-essentials, we must allow for liberty. Be willing that other people may not share our conviction about certain things. But in all things, charity. That is, if I'm dealing with a person who we might call a heretic, a person who has denied the faith, who doesn't believe the teachings of Scripture, I am to love that person, although I will not agree with them and will not compromise my position, I am to treat that person with charity, with love. Or if I'm dealing with a person, and this is often uh, what we see in some of our churches where, uh, you know, some folks want things one way and other things want things another way, and, and we see people get as my grandmother would say, as mad as a wet setting hen. Have you ever seen a wet setting hen? I'm not sure how mad they get. Uh, but folks will get very mad and very upset uh, if things don't go their way. So we're not talking about the good kind of compromise this morning. We're talking about the bad kind of compromise, that compromise where you compromise God's teaching. You compromise the law of God and the Word of God and you abandon the truth of Scripture in favor of convenience or perhaps your own personal opinion. And so we're going to look now in 1 Samuel chapter 27. You might notice we're going to skip over chapter 26 and I'll just give you a very abbreviated, the Reader's Digest, abridged version of chapter 26. Remember a couple of chapters ago, David spared Saul. You all remember the story where Saul was seeking, was seeking David, going to kill him, and David was hiding in a cave kind of up on the side of a mountain. And when Saul and his men camped below, Saul had to tend to his business. And Saul went into the cave, and, and while he was there in that cave tending to his business, David was hidden in the recesses of the cave, David and his men, and you know the story, David's men kind of punched David and said, now's your chance, kill him, strike him dead, God's put him into your hand. But David refused to touch Saul. He said, he's the Lord's anointed, I'll not touch him. He went up and he cut a little piece off the back of Saul's garment. Saul went back out of the cave, and you remember the story, David came out on the ledge after Saul had went back down to the camp, and he says, hey, king, everybody says I'm trying to kill you, but I am not. I could have killed you just a moment ago. I am not your enemy, I'm your friend. As was the case with Saul, he was so up and down, Saul got very emotional. He says, oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I really messed up. David, you're, you're right, I'm wrong. And, and Saul goes about his way. Well, then you remember, David got into trouble with his anger. He got mad at Nabal and was going to kill Nabal and all of, of his men. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, went out and stopped David. And David recognized the error he was about to make. And then in chapter 26, we have a second case where David spares King Saul. This is the second story. And you might remember Saul and his men were camped in a valley. Saul had already backed out on his previous promise not to chase David, not to try to kill him. He's back chasing David again. His jealousy's got the better part of him. And as he's camped out, David says, Hey, I need a guy to go. Who, who wants to volunteer to go with me down into the camp? And one of David's men says, I'll go. And they sneak into the camp. And, and uh, Dave, uh, King Saul's bodyguard, I think it was Abner, who was in charge of the king's army, he's asleep there by the king. And 
And David sneaks in and Saul's got his spear stuck up in the ground at the head of his, his encampment, the head of his, his little sleeping place there. And David picks up the king's spear and steals it. Goes back and gets back in his hiding place. The next morning, when they start waking up, David shouts down. He says, hey, Abner, the king's bodyguard, you're not a very good bodyguard. You should be executed this morning. You're worthless. And, of course, they all get to standing around and say, well, what are you talking about? He says, well, look, I've got the king's spear. Last night I was down in the camp and I, I took the king's spear. What have you been doing? And, of course, he tells again King Saul. He says, Saul, see, I could have killed you last night. I snuck in, took the spear from the head of your bed. I could have killed you, but I didn't because I am not your enemy. And again, Saul, he repents with tears. He says, David, you know, again, I, I, I have played the fool exceedingly, and I, I am just uh, not the man I should be, but I know one day you're going to be king. And, and, and he basically recounts the same promise he made to David earlier. And now we start in verse number 27, or chapter 27, the end of verse number 27. Uh, chapter 26, Saul says to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and prevail. Then David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now you would think that David would be at a high point there at the beginning of chapter 27. Saul said, Okay, I'm wrong. You're right. You're right, David. I, I'm, just, I'm just not myself. And he says, I'm not going to chase you anymore. But did you know that you can be beat and chased and hunted, and things can go against you until you reach a point of desperation. You think about David. David was, after he'd been all, through all of these ups and downs, I present to you, David was emotionally defeated. He was emotionally defeated, he was spiritually discouraged, and he was, he, he was mentally depressed as we begin chapter 27. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, in a place where you feel like you're at your wit's end, David was hunted, he was hounded, he was haunted by what was going to happen in the future. As a matter of fact, we get a look into what David's mindset was. If you look at verse number 1 of chapter 27, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul would despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. David there has said, you know, it's the second time I've, I've shown Saul that I'm not his enemy. And I know what he's going to do. He's going to do just like the first time I showed him this. He's going he's to recant. He's going to go back to his old ways. And, and he's going to start hunting me again. And I know what's going to happen. One day my luck is going to run out and I'm gonna, he's going to get me. He's going to catch me one day, and, and I'm not going to be so lucky, and Saul one day is going to kill me. See, David sees his future. You ever seen your future? You feel like you know what's coming? That was David. And think about just a moment how David, remember we're talking about the calamity of compromise, and we're looking how David ran into a problem here. And, and notice the first thing that he did, he trusted in the wrong confidant. You know, everybody needs a confidant. Everybody needs somebody you can turn to and, and you can ask for advice. Now remember that used to be Samuel for David. Samuel the great prophet. But remember where's Samuel? Samuel's dead. Samuel has died. So Samuel's nowhere to be found. And David can't go to Samuel and say, Samuel, uh, can you help me here? I don't know what to do. Help, give me some advice. Samuel's gone. 
So where does David turn to get advice? Notice what he says. And David said in his heart. Let me tell you someone you should never trust. Never trust. Never trust. It's not your neighbor. It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. Don't tell them I said that. But I tell you who you should never trust. Your heart. Your heart. Never trust your heart. Let me tell you what the Bible says about your heart. Genesis 6, 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 19, 3. The foolishness of a man twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? You know the most evil master and cruel master you can have is your own desires. If you make up your mind, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, and you know, no matter what it costs, or who says anything, I'm going to do what I want to do. That is the cruelest master you will ever have. Is your own heart. And to simply go the way that you think is best, simply go the way that you want to go, giving no regard to what God says, giving no regard to what anybody else says, you simply say, I'm going to live for me for a change. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm tired of listening to everybody else. I'm tired of everybody else telling me what to do. I'm tired of God telling me what to do. I'm tired of this person telling me what to do. I know what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's where David was. David there says, he began to reason in his heart. He says, listen, I'm not going to live long. I know it. Saul's going to kill me. It could be any day. And so I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. Wait a minute. Isn't this David that killed Goliath? the great champion of the Philistines. And now David is going to the land of the Philistines, so he was listening to his heart, listening to the wrong confident. And now notice there in verse number 1, he says he begins to speak to himself. He gives himself the wrong counsel. He says, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Now the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You see, David's heart and David's advice to himself is contrary to what God's promise. What, what did God promise David through Samuel? When Samuel anointed David, what did he tell him? You're going to be king one day. God has anointed you to be king. And this was God's sure word to David. But now here David is doubting that word. David's saying, I'm not going to be king. I'm going to die. Saul's going to catch me one day and he's going to kill me. As sure as the world, Saul is going to kill me one day. David is beset by fear. And you know, we all have a choice to make as we go through life. Am I going to listen to what God says? Or am I going to listen to what others say? And perhaps the most dangerous... Am I, instead of listening to what God says, am I going to listen to what I say? Am I going to listen to what I want to do? 
Am I going to listen to what direction I choose to take? And that's David right here in chapter 27. He's beginning to doubt God's promises. He's saying, listen, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. Well, you know, I know God helped me defeat Goliath, and, and I know God delivered me from Saul many, many times, but I mean, how many times can God show up? I mean, like you say, I mean, one of these days, Saul's going to rear back with that spear, and I'm not going to duck fast enough, and, and that's going to be it. He's going to kill me, I know. Remember, he's haunted by the future. And so David here is in trouble, and David is beginning to make a wrong decision. And he makes that wrong decision in chapter 27, verse number 1. He says, okay, I'm going to the land of the Philistines. So, notice there in verse 2, says, Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahana the Jezreitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. You know, sometimes there's what we call the false peace or the false satisfaction of disobedience and sin. David makes this decision to go into the land of Philistines and, and when he makes that decision, immediately it works out just like he thought it would. Saul says, somebody tells Saul, David's fled to the land of the Philistines. Saul says, okay, he's not my problem anymore. I'm not going to worry about him. I'm not going to look for him any longer. And David breathes a sigh of relief. That's just exactly what I was hoping. I don't have to worry about waking up in the middle of the night. Saul's not chasing me anymore. And my friend, often when we decide that we're going to go our own way, things do work out great for a while. We decide, man, this is great. I'm doing the things that I want to do. I'm doing what, what I've always wanted to do. And things are looking good. And that is a wrong comfort, a false comfort that disobedience brings. You know, the Bible says that stolen honey is sweet to the mouth, but bitter to the stomach. Meaning that at the beginning it is sweet and it's wonderful and it's good. But later, when it reaches the belly, it creates a problem. And that's such a perfect picture of disobedience and sin. Well, that's the road to compromise that David began to enter and that David was on. But now look there in verse number 8, the result of his compromise. He goes down to the land of the Philistines and Achish, the ruler there, uh, he gives him a city. And David's all set up here in the land of the enemy. And now David begins to act a different way. It says in verse number 8, So David and his men went up and raided the Gezerites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jamarillites, or the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us. Thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. The first thing that 
David appears to lose as he goes into the land of the Philistines. And this is a picture, we believe, of compromise. David, the man of God, who's compromising his his convictions and the Word of God. The first thing that we notice is he loses his purity. What does he begin to do? He begins to be violent. And he kills both men and women. He lies to the man who is in charge there, Achish, and he tells him he's raiding Israel when he's really not raiding Israel. He's not raiding his native land. He's raiding other people, foreign people. So he is now acting like the Philistines. And that's exactly what happens when we begin to compromise and we go against the Word of God. We begin to look like the world and act like the world and and smell like the world and everything we do is just like the world. And so David, you couldn't tell him from a Philistine. He's acting just like the Philistines. He's losing his purity. Now notice in something else, he loses his passion. There's something missing in the 27th chapter of 1 Samuel. There's no mention of David seeking God. No mention of David praying. And as we go through 1 Samuel often, and we're going to see it before this passage ends, David's going to come back to God and he's going to begin to seek God. But now when he's in the land of the Philistines, he's not seeking God. He's not praying. He's not asking God what he should do. David knows what he wants to do. He doesn't need to ask anybody. He's got his own way. He's doing what he wants to do. And David has lost his passion. We begin to compromise the Word of God and the will of God for our own opinions and what we want. We lose our purity. And secondly, we lose our passion for God. David loses his passion for God. We don't have any record, as far as we know, of David writing a psalm during the 16 months that he was in the land of Gath, the land of the Philistines. Now, you know, before we finish this study, we're going to go through and we're going to take the book of Psalms and we're going to look at when David wrote many of those Psalms in his life and we can kind of pair those up, the first and second Samuel. But you won't find any Psalms that, that we know of, certainly not that tells us were written during the 16th month, 16 month period that David was in the land of the Philistines. You see, David has lost his inspiration. God is not speaking to him. He is not speaking to God. You know, David's just going along and, and he's taking God for granted. There's no relationship there and, and there's no purity. There's no passion. David has begun to learn the result of his compromise. Another result of his compromise, notice there in chapter 27 and verse number 2 and 3. Remember there were 600 men who were with him and all their wives and their household. All of those people came into, Philip, came into Gath with David. And, and always remember, when we compromise, when we walk away or we slink away or we slide away or we run away from God, there's always people who follow us. Always people who follow us. And David had over 600 people who followed him down into the land of the Philistines. And something happened there in chapter uh, number 30, verses 1 through 6. By the way, there's a kind of a pause, a parenthesis, and we're going to pick that up in a couple of weeks. Uh, and that is, uh, we, we often refer to her as the witch of Endor. And old King Saul, he gets kind of desperate for a spiritual word, and he hadn't heard anything out of God in a while, and he's kind of wondering he needs somebody to give him some advice. So he goes to a witch, 
And he wants to, her to bring up Samuel from the dead. He wants Samuel to come back from the dead and give him some kind of a spiritual advice about what he needs to do and, and what he should do. And that's a sad story. We're going to get to that uh, perhaps next week, but we're going to skip over that. That's the rest of chapter uh, number 28. But let's go back there to chapter 30. And we're going to see in verse number 1, it says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag, that is the city that the king of the Philistines had given them to live in. So they came back to their city on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. David had lost his purity when he made that compromise and he went down into the land of Gath. He had lost his passion for God. There were no psalms written. There's no record of David seeking God or praying or trying to find out what God wanted. And here we see a third loss. David loses his people. All of his people, all of their wives and all of their children, they are taken captive by the Amalekites. And this is where we begin the last part of the message I want to share with you this morning. And that is the return from compromise. We saw the road to compromise, how David ended up where he was. He began to listen to his own heart, listen to what he wanted, and didn't pay any attention to what God said. And then we saw the result of that compromise where he lost his purity and he lost his passion and, and now he's lost his people. And now we're going to see the return from compromise and it begins with an intervention. You ever heard of an intervention? You know, folks talk about having an intervention. You go to the doctor and uh, maybe somebody's doing something they don't need to do. They might pull you aside and say, hey, y'all need to get with this person and have an intervention. What they mean is, you know, the path that they're on is a bad path. And they're not going to stop if nothing happens. And so something has to happen to break this cycle. And, and, and you need to stage an intervention. You've got to make something drastic happen, turn everything in this person's life upside down and stop what is happening. People stage interventions. Husbands, wives, parents, even children stage interventions for their parents sometimes. Did you know there's somebody else that does interventions? His name's God. Sometimes God will stage an intervention. And God will say, I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to put a pause on everything. I'm going to put a stop on everything. You're going to run out of gas. Things are not going to rock along like they've been rocking along because you're my son. You're my daughter. I, I care about you. And, you know, the Bible teaches us that God doesn't discipline the ungodly. You might wonder why some folks live so wicked. And, and it seems like they are, they are just charmed. I mean, they get one blessing after the other. Nothing bad ever happens. Listen, if that ever happens to you, you know you're out of God's will and you are rocking along happy as a lark. I hate to tell you, my friend, but I'm afraid you're going to wake up in hell one day because you must not belong to God. Because if you belong to God and you're out of God's will and you have compromised the truth of God and the law of God, God is going to stage an intervention. 
God disciplines His children. And if you are God's child, as David was God's child, and David had gone down into the land of Gath, God decides it's time for David to come back home. David has been in the land of the Philistines long enough. I'm going to send some Am- Amalekites down his way, and, and they're going to round up... I'm going to get his attention. They're going to round up all of his wives and all of his children and all of his men's wives and all of his men's children, and they're going to take them away. And now for the first time in a couple of chapters, we see some tears in David's eyes. We see David here in just a moment. He is about to do something we haven't seen him do in several chapters. He is going to seek God. He's going to cry out to God. That is the first step in the return from Compromise. David begins to seek God. But the first thing that happens is he has to be awoken or awakened. There's too many teachers in this church for me. I can't even talk. I'm scared somebody's going to correct me. I'm just joking, uh, men and ladies. But it does intimidate me sometimes, all the education around me. He is awakened, whatever it means. He woke up, all right? He woke up from his spiritual slumber. And David now realizes that he has been walking away from the Lord. He's been walking away from God and and God stages an intervention. You know, my daddy's here today and I appreciate him and my mother very much and uh, they used to stage interventions with me occasionally. Uh, Mama's favorite tool of intervention was a fly flap. I hope she hadn't killed a fly with it before she got a hold of me. And uh, I didn't mind the fly flap too much. Uh, I tried to be smart and pretended it hurt so she would think she had really done a good job and then she'd quit. And I learned that pretty early on. Don't try to be brave. That just caused more punishment to be inflicted. (laughs) But Daddy wasn't so easily deterred. You know, his favorite mode of intervention was a belt. And the bad thing was he always had them be Western belts, you know, and they were pretty wide. But that always got my attention, was an intervention. But they did that, and and I've never seen them whip anybody else's kids. I've often thought, I wish they would, but they should have. They were a lot meaner than I was. But they didn't go to church uh, when we went to church and start jerking up everybody else's youngin' and wearing them out. You know, some incident occurred. They set me down and said, son, what'd you do? You know, I was the one that they intervened. Well, that's the way it works. That's what the Bible says. That, you know, you don't discipline other people's kids as bad as you might want to. You discipline your own children. And it's the same way with God. When we are His, God disciplines us. So so when God is disciplining you and He's bringing you to a point of repentance, that means that you're His. You're His and He desires for you to get back where you need to be. He desires for you to have that relationship with him. So that's exactly what happens. God stages an intervention. The Amalekites take away their families. Now notice what David does, his path to restoration. Notice the first thing I just mentioned in verse 4. There's a time of weeping. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And, and then in verse number 6, uh, there... The Bible says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. And there David is. David, I mean, nobody trusts David anymore. He's just brought them to a place where they've lost everything that mattered the most. They've lost their families. 
Their families are no longer there. And, and David is weeping. And the people are not only weeping, they're angry. And their anger is directed toward David who led them to that place. And they say, uh, you know, I think we might just stone this guy. You know, this guy's led us to a disaster. And so David, first of all, has to be broken. And did you know, my friend, sometimes when we have gone on a path that we didn't need to be on, the first thing and the best thing that can happen to us is to be broken. To be broken. And David is broken here. All the pride that he had in his wisdom and all the, the ideas that he had about being a great leader, those are shattered. And David recognized... I love Dr. Burt's prayer, by the way. I know you weren't talking to us, Dr. Burt, but it blessed me uh, as you were praying and talking about, Oh Lord, we have no trust in ourselves. You alone are our salvation. And my friend, that is the very first step if we are truly to have a walk with God to recognize that I can have no confidence in myself. I can have no confidence in my own righteousness, in my own wisdom. I trust in God and in God alone. He is my righteousness and He is my wisdom. He is my hope. And that's where David had to be brought back to that place of humility to recognize that in God and in God alone did he have strength. So there was a time of weeping, but you know, weeping by itself is not enough. If all you are is broken, you're just broken. But God doesn't break us to leave us broke. God breaks us that He might put us back together. And so David was broken, but notice in verse number 6, chapter 30, verse 6, it says, Now David was greatly grieved, and the latter part says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now notice verse number 8. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? First time we've seen David ask God anything. But it had to come after an intervention. It had to come after David was broken. And finally, David decides he'll ask God something. He don't report him asking God, shall I go to the land of Gath? He didn't ask God, should I go down to the land of the Philistines? He didn't ask God, can I raid these places around me? But now, all of a sudden, the loss of all of his family, he comes to God and he says, Lord, what shall I do? Shall I go and overtake them? Shall I go in pursuit of them? In verse 9, well, he gets an answer first of all. He says, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. God gives him a promise. Boy, what a sweet word that must have been to a broken soul. David is in despair. And David says, and how he must have trembled waiting on the answer, Shall I pursue them? He didn't know if his family, all his wives and children, if the Amalekites had slaughtered them all, if they'd sold them off into Egypt, into slavery. David asked with trembling lips, Shall I pursue? Shall I pursue them? And what will happen when I do? And what a wonderful word of hope, what a wonderful word of promise comes back. And the word comes back, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Maybe the most important word in that whole sentence. All. Without fail, you shall recover all. Now there's a couple of things, and I don't want to spend too long here, as is my custom. But I will say this. Notice that David, when he asked of God, God didn't say, just sit tight, son, I'll bring them back to you. He said, pursue. Pursue. Uh, again, I... I I take advantage of Lloyd sometimes when she's not present. But uh, 
You know, that's something that we learn as men early on, often. Some women learn it too, I guess. But, but uh, you know, our, our, our wives, and when they're our sweethearts, they want us to pursue them, you know, to go after them. And I shared a couple of weeks ago about the couple that I uh, used to watch in high school. And uh, he'd send her roses about every other week. And, and I thought, my goodness alive. Can you love somebody that much? Have you checked on the price of a dozen roses lately? <laughs> about every other week, he's sending her a dozen roses. And uh, I just saw him the other night at an event. And I told him, I said, you know, I use y'all. I don't call your name, but I use y'all's example every once in a while. And I uh, just laughed, thought it was funny. Uh, but but I, I always think about that couple when I think about someone pursuing somebody. And the, the fact that David was willing to pursue, to get back what he had lost. And sometimes you and I have to pursue to get back what we have lost. God says, yes, I will bring back what you've lost, but you're going to have to go after it. It's going to take some effort to get it back. You're going to have to go in search of that that you have lost. But I will, I will bring it back to you. So that's the message he got from the Lord. And then verse number 9, So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and the 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary they could not cross the brook Besor. Now notice, you get over all the way to verse 18 of chapter 30, where David gets back what had been lost. Verse number 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. After God's intervention came David's restoration. After God's intervention came David's restoration. David began to seek God. And David went in search of what the enemy had stolen from him. And the Bible says that with God's help, David recovered all that was lost. What are we talking about this morning? We're talking about the calamity of compromise. I want to ask you, I want to caution you, are you on a road to compromise? Are you on a road to compromise? And by that, I'm talking about, again, the bad type of compromise, not the good type of compromise. We all have to compromise about our wants and desires. But the bad type of compromise is when we compromise the clear teaching of the Word of God and we go against that clear teaching of God's Word in our own life, in those lives of those that we have authority and care over, and we go our own way. We go our own way. If you truly belong to God, if you are His child, you've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, God will stage an intervention if you go that route. God will call you back to Himself. And what I love most of all about this story is that sure promise that God gave David. Where God told David, Pursue, and you shall overtake. Pursue, and you shall overtake. I, this word's been on me strong this morning, this word of hope. Hope. Maybe you're here today and you feel that you are without hope for whatever reason. 
I tell you, God is a God who brings hope. When I read the life of David, and I see a man so flawed in so many ways, I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes you read the life of David and you say, okay, is this a hero? Okay, this is, this is a hero. All right, this is the definition of a Bible hero. I don't know. He, he looks, he's got a lot of warts if you ask me. I mean, this guy's in pretty bad shape. But you know, when I read the life of David, I read the life of Samson, I read the life of the Apostle Peter, and I see all these flawed people. You know what it does? It gives me hope. God is a God who takes broken people. And He takes broken people and He infuses them with His grace and His love and He mends broken people and broken lives and He uses them. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that's the, that's the kind of folks God likes. God chooses the weak and the foolish and those that no one else would choose. And, and God picks them out and, and God wants to defeat a mighty army. He didn't get, uh, he didn't get Gideon with, with tens, and th- tens of thousands of soldiers. He said, just give me 300, Gideon. That's all I, all I need. And maybe you're like Gideon's 300. You think what you're facing is totally beyond your ability to overcome it. Well, maybe it is. But God specializes in things that are impossible. Don't lose faith. Don't give up hope. If you're in the land of Gath, the land of the Philistines, God calls you back to a path of reconciliation. God calls you back to be back where He wants you to be. As our musicians come, let's pray. Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And Lord, we thank You that You are a God of hope. You are a God of miracles. You are a God who changes and brings to life that which is dead. And Lord, we pray for those this morning who perhaps are without hope, those who feel that life has passed them by and there is no hope for them any longer. I pray that You would infuse in them that spark of hope. I pray, God, that You would convict all of us if, Lord, we've crossed over into the land of the Philistines in a spiritual sense. Lord, if we are compromising Your Word and, and we've abandoned where You call us to be, I pray, Lord, that You will intervene. Intervene in our lives and draw us back to sweet fellowship with You. Have Your will and Your way in this invitation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.